Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 15 this evening. We'll be in the book of Judges chapter 15 as we continue our Sunday evening series on this book. The historian writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, But after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go in to my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail, put one torch in the middle between the two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? They said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire, Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand Men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. They said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When they came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes were on his arms. They were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance. By the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore he named it in Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel for twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Now... 
Last week, as we were looking at Judges chapter 14, we saw there early in the chapter how the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines and thus was at work in these events of getting Samson to go down to the Philistines to seek a wife. And we saw that the Lord was was working through the events of the riddle and the wager with the wedding guests and the slaughter of the 30 Philistines in Ashkelon. This occasion was of the Lord. He was seeking this occasion against the Philistines. But we would be wrong to see this occasion as ending with the payment of the wager at the end of chapter 14 and Samson going back to his father's house in a rage. Though chapter 14 ends there, this occasion that the Lord was seeking against the Philistines does not end there. And if you pay attention to the flow of the narrative and the cause and effect relationships of the events that take place, you'll notice that Samson's desire to marry the Philistine woman in Temnah back at the beginning of chapter 14 set off this series of cause and effect events that does not really come to a conclusion until you get to the end of chapter 15. Throughout chapter 15, the dominoes are still falling one after another in this chain of events. And this is obvious enough by the way that chapter 15 opens. Even though Samson, as we saw at the end of chapter 14, had departed from Timnah in a rage, he wasn't yet done with his marriage. He was ready to let bygones be bygones, and he took this young goat with him, which was presumably his way of saying that he wanted to have a romantic dinner with his wife. And he shows up at the home of his father-in-law, And his father-in-law says he can't let Samson go in. She's already been given to someone else. And so in order to avoid the possible fallout, he offers Samson his younger daughter. Just say, well, she's she's better. And Samson is not up for that. It was written in the law in Leviticus 18.18, You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Now, it's not clear that Samson was particularly concerned with keeping the law of God in this or whether he was just overall disgusted with how he had been treated during this entire scenario. One way or the other, though, he is ready to take some revenge. And so he does. He catches these foxes, 300 of them, perhaps could be translated as jackals, and may have been a short time, may have been a long time, we don't know, but nevertheless, he catches them, ties them together, tail to tail, torch in the middle, lights the torches on fire, and out they go into the standing grain, and they burn it up, along with the vineyards and the olive groves. There goes that year's harvest for the Philistines. Samson's plan was successful. Havoc and destruction followed in the wake of the foxes, hence the Philistine response in verse 6. They want to know who. Who was the man who did this? It was Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite. Samson's upset about losing his wife to the best man at his wedding, and so in retaliation, the Philistines come and they burn down, uh, they burn Samson's father-in-law and Samson's wife with fire. Presumably they burned the house down on them while they were inside, thus fighting fire with fire, literally. And thus, ironically, the very fate that Samson's wife had been trying to escape back in chapter 14 when she pestered him to tell him the answer to that riddle, right? The, the companions at the wedding had said, We'll burn you and your father with fire if you don't tell us this riddle. She'd been trying to avoid that. But nevertheless, that fate still came upon her. And so, in light of that, Samson strikes them ruthlessly with 
a great slaughter. We see the cause and effect there in verse 7. Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that, I will quit. So after the slaughter, Samson would have considered the score settled. But if you know anything about a feud and an argument, you'll know that that's not the way that it works. You might be ready to be done once you get the last punch in the fight. The other guy is not ready to let you be done with once you land the last punch. He wants the last punch. And so Samson goes up to hide out in the cleft of the rock in Etam, which seems to have been located in the territory of Judah, which would have been probably near the land of the Philistines and then also near to the territory of Dan as well, Samson being from the tribe of Dan. And so the Philistines, not being content to let Samson have the last word, they come up to Judah in order to find him. And the men of Judah obviously see what's going on. They see all these Philistines coming into their territory, and they ask about it. The Philistines respond by saying, we've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. And so with that, a delegation of 3,000 men from Judah go to talk things over with Samson. And they remind him in so many words that you can't do this, Samson. Philistines are in charge here. Samson's response, I was just doing to them what they did to me. And the men from Judah, thus having grown comfortable and complacent under the Philistine rule, at least reasonably so, are not wanting the boat to be rocked anymore. So they announce that they've come to bind Samson and to hand him over to the Philistines. Samson secures this pledge that they themselves will not harm him. And so Samson is willing to be bound and taken to the Philistines. And when he meets the Philistines, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He rips the ropes. He finds the donkey's jawbone and kills a thousand Philistines. And his uh, poetic utterance in verse 16 is is a play on words in the original because the word for heap would be pronounced roughly the same way as the word for donkey. And so it's a, it's a bit of a play on words between heaps and, and donkeys. And after the battle, he's exhausted, worn out, and cries out to the Lord for supernatural provision. He says, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And the Lord, who had obviously given this victory to Samson, thus sustained him with sustenance as well. God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, we read, and the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Now that is a brief overview of what we have going on in this chapter. Again, the dominoes were falling, and they're part of the same string of circumstances that stretch back to Samson's being smitten with this Philistine woman there at the beginning of chapter 14. This was the Lord's way of working as he sought that occasion against the Philistines. Now, what what can we learn from this chapter? I'm sure there may be other lessons to learn here, but the one I want to focus in on is the rather unfortunate mentality of the people of Judah. As we saw, they had seemingly grown complacent under the authority of the Philistines. They accepted them as their legitimate overlords, and therefore they're uncomfortable with Samson stirring the pot. Look back to verse 11. They say, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that that you have done to us? So many words are saying Samson. Don't you get it? The Philistines are the power that is. You can't be doing this because this is going to come back on us and this is not going to go well for us. We've got Philistines now in our territory because of what you have done. 
This was their attitude. Instead of joining with Samson and helping him to fight off these occupiers, we see clearly that, that the Lord was, was at work here in Samson with all of his faults, using him to bring about deliverance from the Philistines, and yet the people of Judah are willing to be collaborators with the enemy. They're willing to help them get Samson just so that their lives would not be so messy. And there's a lesson here for us, I think, in their negative example. One of the songs that my sons love for me to sing to them when I put them to bed is an old song called The Minutemen Are Turning in Their Graves. And it's a song decrying some national conditions. And one of the, uh, the chorus says, the, uh, the Minutemen are turning in their graves. Washington and Jefferson are crying tears of shame to see these men who'd rather live as slaves. The Minutemen are turning in their graves. Now, godly and sober Christians have debated the theological merits and demerits of the American Revolution, and I'm not here to discuss that one way or the other tonight, nor am I here to discuss the issue of civil liberties here tonight. What I am here uh, for us to consider tonight, though, is that to see in the tendencies of these men of Judah a symptom of a spiritual tendency that can affect us all, namely a tendency to grow complacent and comfortable with evil. In regard to the behavior of the men of Judah on this occasion, we might say that Caleb and Joshua were crying tears of shame. To see these men who would rather live under the authority of the Philistines than to take a stand with Samson, whom the Lord had raised up for them. As commentator Andrew Fawcett put it, sin it was that had enslaved their spirits and now debased their minds so that they preferred indolent submission to liberty even when such a hero offered himself as their deliverer under God. These men thus had had grown used to the tyranny of the Philistine overlords and they weren't up for joining in the fight to take a stand against them. In handing Samson over to the Philistines, these men of Judah foreshadowed a later generation of their people who would do the same thing to their Messiah, bind him and hand him over to those in authority outside of their nation. And so we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, that binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. That's what the chief priests and the the rulers of the Jewish nation did to Christ. They, they bound him, and they led him away, and handed him off to the Gentiles. The reasoning of the Jews in John 11, verse 48, sounds like it could almost be another verse in the song that these 3,000 men of Judah were singing. So we read in John 11:48, the Jews saying, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And the implication was, we've got to do something about this Jesus fellow. We can't let him go on like this. We've got to get rid of him. Joining yourself to the Lord's side and fighting in his battle can be scary. And it might sometimes mean that we have to sacrifice our earthly well-being and security, or at least those things that we believe will be for our earthly well-being and security. Joining the Lord's side means that you have to be willing to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are bad. At least we know that in theory. But sometimes we grow comfortable with the world. We grow comfortable with the flesh. We grow comfortable 
with the machinations of the evil one. And this is because they don't always show their true colors. The world, the flesh, and the devil may, in that regard, resemble the description that the reporter Clarissa Ward gave uh, just a couple weeks ago in, uh, in Kabul while she was reporting about the Taliban. She said, they're chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. That's the way the world, the flesh, and the devil operate. They are the enemies of your soul. They're working to drag you to hell. But on the surface, they seem friendly enough. They are presenting to you the kinds of things that in your fleshly self, you'd be like, whoa, yeah, that's really cool. I want that. They seem friendly enough, but they're chanting death to your soul. It's utterly bizarre. Things are not always what they seem. The point is that we have to do in our time and place what the men of Judah did not do. They would not rally to their deliverer. They would not seek his deliverance and join his cause in the fighting. They did the opposite, right? They, they bound him and handed him over. Now, in our context, Christ has come and defeated Satan and has disarmed the ruler and the authorities by his work on the cross. But the, the mop-up operation against our enemies continues in the meantime until the second coming. And in that meantime, we're to take up our cross and to follow Christ, to fight the good fight of faith and to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're called to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Back in the 17th century, the English preacher Richard Sibbs preached a couple of sermons on Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And the title of these two sermons was called Violence Victorious. Matthew 11, verse 12 is this text. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And this is, this is some of what Richard Sibbs had to say. He said, In all degrees of salvation there is violence. Hence, in effectual calling, when we are called out of the kingdom of Satan, he is not willing to let us go. He will keep us there still. And when we come to have our sins forgiven in justification, there is opposition. Proud flesh and blood will not yield to the righteousness of the gospel. It will not rest in Christ. It will seek something in itself. In sanctification, there is opposition between the flesh and the spirit. Every good work that we do is gotten out by fire. As it were, it is gotten by violence. He said, God will have this violence and striving as a character of difference to show who are illegitimate professors of Christ and who are not, who will go to the price of Christianity and who will not. If men will go to heaven, they must be violent. They must be at the cost and charges sometimes to venture life itself and whatsoever is dear and precious in the world. A man must be so violent that he must go through all, even death itself, though it be a bloody death to Christ. In all estates of the church, it is almost equally difficult to be a sound Christian, for God requires this violence even in the most peaceable times. Again, God will have us get these things with violence, that we may set a greater price on them when we have got them. When we have things that are gotten by violence, they are gotten hardly. Oh, we value them much. Heaven is heaven then. Things that are gotten hardly are hardly kept and highly prized. And the point that, that Richard Sibbs was going for there is that following after Christ is not an easy thing. The terms of the gospel are free and clear. 
Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. But nevertheless, we have to be willing to stand up against the oppressors of our souls, be it our human pride that will not accept the free gift of grace that Christ offers in the gospel, be it our fleshly tendencies to choose sin over Christ in the the battle for sanctification, whatever it may be, we must be violent, so to speak, not against people, but in the spiritual realm. And so let's not leave Caleb and Joshua turning in their graves. Let's not be among those who would bind Samson and hand him over. Let's not be those who are content to live in sin, those who are content to be void of good works, or those who are cowardly in the service of Christ. Let us rather be those who take the kingdom of heaven by violence. Let us be those who join with the words of David in Psalm 60, verse 12, when he said, Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love to live in ease, and often we think that the path of least resistance is the best one. But you have called us out of the world. You have called us to Christ. You've called us to take up our cross and to follow him. These are not easy things. Though your salvation comes freely to us, our flesh chafes so much in so many ways under the service of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would fight off our sinfulness, that we would fight off our flesh and the allurements of the world, the temptations of the devil. We pray, Lord, that we would rally to Christ, who is our true deliverer, our great Savior, our King, and that we would be his people and serve him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.